This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 583 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show the Rising Warrior Team. Now, the team consists of Lance Davis, John Perez, and Sean Lazio, who each have a very different military background, but they came together after seeing the physical and mental challenges of the veteran and first responder population. So we discuss a host of topics from CrossFit to breathwork, neuro-linguistic programming, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you the Rising Warrior Team. Enjoy. Well, Lance, Sean, and John, I want to start by saying thank you so much. I know we, this is this happens a lot when you have an international 
audience, oh, excuse me, international guests that come on the show. I mean, time zone changes and uh, daylight savings. So I know there was a little uh, miscommunication last time. So I want to welcome you all to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for having us, James. Thanks I'm excited. for having us. All right. So are you all in the same rough geographical location at the moment or are you all over the place? All right. I see, <laughs> I see yeah. heads being shaked. So, so what we'll do then, I'll kind of, I'll kind of go around the, the screen as it were. So Lance first, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? I am currently in Portland, Oregon. Beautiful. So what I like to do is take a, a, a walk through chronologically, obviously, with this multiple guests. It'll be more brief, but, um, I think it's important to hear the backstory, especially when we get to your, your service and, you know, what, what you saw within the community, what you're trying to do outside the community now. So for you, Lance, where were you born? And give me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Uh, thank you. Uh, I, I said this when we first talked, this is an awesome intro question. I love it. Um, I was born and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, mother and father, um, typical family, um, parents together the whole life. Um, uh, older brother, five years older. Uh, that's the gist of it. Great household. Can't complain. Um, growing up, my dad was, uh, he retired military, uh, and then a firefighter. So for me, it was in the back of my mind, I always wanted to be in the military and, uh, right out of high school, you know, the idea of college was always the thing. Uh, college was not for me. So I looked into the military and my dad was in every branch except for the Navy. And he said, Hey, Lance, whatever you do, don't join the military. And if you do, I understand just don't do army or Marines. Guess what I did? Army. Joined, joined the army. Infantry. <laughs> Didn't listen. Um, so I spent five years in the active duty out of 101st at Fort Campbell, Kentucky with two tours, uh, one year in Iraq, one year in Afghanistan. And I can keep going if you want. But. Yeah. So, well, let's, let's stop there for a second, but just going back again, um, you know, so you had a dad that was not only a veteran, but also in the first responder profession, which is incredible. Um, with the the physical side, because I mean, you're a chiropractor now, obviously, overall health is very important. What were you playing? How were you working out when you were in school age? Uh, how was I working out? Yeah, sorry, there was, I phrased that very poorly. You know, what sports were you playing? What was your kind of um, fitness uh, passion back then? Uh, early high school, I was into soccer and very little bit of, of basketball later on junior senior i didn't really play any sports i was not into any athletics um my brother got me into fitness and weightlifting right before we went into the military and then um that started my fitness role from there brilliant all right well sean i'm going to put the same question to you and we'll kind of bring everyone up to prior to military um so tell me about where you were born and your family dynamic yeah. So I was born in Southern California. I was born and raised there until I joined the army. Um, my father was in construction, so he did rebar pretty much his entire life. He just retired. And my mother went to school later on, um, probably 10 years later to become an uh, elementary teacher. So she taught, taught uh, kindergarten and first grade. Um, yeah, so I grew up, baseball was... Baseball was most of my life until I joined the Army. So from the time I was about five, I started playing, and then I got into travel ball, so I got to travel around the country, um, 
to play baseball. It was a really great opportunity. Fell in love with it. I always tell people it was my first love. Um, I also have an older brother. He's about two and a half years older, and uh, he's now an electrician, still living in Southern California. Uh, my parents moved out to the East Coast, and yeah, I was the first, at least in my immediate family, to join the military. Uh, my brother tried to join. He was looking to go into the Marines, and they told him no because he had asthma. So, yeah, most of my most of my life was literally revolved around baseball. So it was preventing. Like, I was told I can't really go out and do all the fun stuff because if I get injured, then I can't keep playing baseball. And I was I was a good ball player, so we were hoping to, uh, for some college scholarships. And there was even one or two times when I was a little bit younger where I was lumped into uh, being scouted by some professional teams as well. Um, obviously, took a much different much different path than I originally anticipated. So, yeah, I joined the Army in, in 2008, active duty. Uh, I was also stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Uh, I joined uh, the Cavalry Scouts uh, when I went and talked to the recruiters. Uh, I, I did really well on my ASVAB, and they're like, you can have any job that you want. And I was like, cool. I don't want to, I don't want to be a paper pusher. I don't want to be sitting behind a desk. Like if I'm going to join the military, I want to go experience, you know, what I perceived as the military, which was, you know, combat job. So deployed to Afghanistan 2010. And I actually got back. I landed stateside two days before the Bin Laden thing happened. So, um, in terms of the, the timeline, that's where I was at. And, uh, yeah. So, only did the one deployment to Afghanistan, like I said, and the, you know the biggest thing that really stands out from that is like it was a giant, it, it was it was an experience to say the least. So not only to experience a new culture, but also everyone that I served with had been to Af or I'm sorry, been to Iraq, but never to Afghanistan. And within three days of landing, they're like, "This is this is beyond our scope. Like we've not experienced this before." So like we were all in it for the first time together. And I, I did have a grandfather who, who was in the Army, 82nd Airborne, and like, he got out right before uh, Vietnam happened. So didn't have much contact with him, but I, I grew up with an affinity for the military. And similarly, like, I was thinking of going to school, and once the baseball scholarships didn't happen, which is you know, just as much my fault for not putting myself out there, um, and actually applying. I was like, you know what? I don't want to be in debt for the rest of my life. I, I learned that from my mother um, when she went back to school and like she still talks about having school debt. So, so yeah, all good. Beautiful. So with uh, Lance's story, obviously there were you know, the military and the family and first responder. You mentioned your grandfather. Was that really the main reason why you, when you felt like the baseball journey had ended that you would go into the military? I had actually, so uh, the the grandfather of mine that was in, I didn't talk to from the time I was about five years old until, I mean, I had my first phone call with him approximately two years ago. So going into it, I, I really didn't have anybody that was pushing me to do it. I didn't have any friends. I didn't call anybody's parents really being in the military. Um, it was something that, you know, from a young age that it just really caught my attention. And so like I played the video games, uh, you know, when I was a younger child, I had the GI Joes. Um, and yeah, it was one of those, uh, like I said, like once, once I knew I wasn't going to get a scholarship for baseball and I just remember my mom talking about, you know, the amount of debt that she was in and the amount of stress that it caused her. I, at that point I was like, you know what, I'll do something different. And plus I wanted to get out of my hometown because I knew if I stuck around that it, it tends to suck people in. So I grew up in a smaller town 
And yeah, so I went and, you know, did the recruiter thing, talked to them about it. They, they hooked me on the videos of, of these, of these people writing in on quads and ATVs and blowing things up. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. And I didn't do that. So <laughs> they definitely got, they definitely got me. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, John, same question to you. So where you were born and family dynamic, and then kind of walk us through your, your journey into the military as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I was born in a neighborhood in San Juan, Puerto Rico, Carrillo Piedras. Um, I grew up in a house with a younger brother, two years younger, mom and dad. Mom was a uh, executive assistant, or back then they used to call them secretaries, uh, at the uh, Supreme Court in Puerto Rico. And my, and my dad was a, a serial entrepreneur. Uh, so we had several businesses when we were, when we were young. Um, uh, yeah, and so I, I moved to the U.S. under some stressful circumstances. Uh, my grandmother died. My dad was um, sued for, for something that he later was acquitted for, but we lost everything at the time. Uh, so my journey to the U.S. W- um, was, uh, in hindsight, a gift and also really challenging. For uh, I was 12. I was 2003. I was 12 years old. Um, came over to the U.S. and, and to, uh, lived in Massachusetts, Western Mass., uh, went to junior high there, high school there. Um, and for me, uh, your sports question earlier, I, I ran uh, track in high school. It was the only sport I could do that I wasn't going to get hurt in because my family didn't have a health insurance at the time. So, um, And I loved sprinting. I was like, uh, I was a dead, uh, 100%. All I cared about was running fast. Um, so, uh, and in that time as well as when I got into uh, weightlifting, training, when I started, I think the first time I did a squat, I was like, what? <laughs> it like changed my life when I realized that I could carry all that weight. Um, and then uh, going into uh, college, so I actually hadn't really heard at all about the military. I mean, you know, on TV and stuff, I'd heard about the military, but I don't have any military family at all in any of my uh, background. There were some recruiters who would go to our school, um, and I was a little bit piqued, interested. But I knew for my family, like it was important for us to go to college. Um, and so I wanted to get educated. Um, and really, I didn't have a lot of opportunity in terms of paying for my own school. So I was going to, um, I was a good student. So I wanted to uh, leverage that. And I had no idea what I was doing coming into my senior year and actually learned about, um, I, I didn't want to enlist. I actually wanted to go to school, like I said. And so I learned about the uh, Naval Academy uh, at a career conference, excuse me, a college fair for uh, Hispanic and minority students in my school. And uh, met a guy there, he was a recruiter for the Naval Academy, talked to him, you know, he started talking about things like honor and, and duty and, and courage and leadership. And I was like, what, never heard this in my life before. Um, you know, a little bit in the, on the track, you know, talking about leadership as, as, a, as a leader of the younger guys, but outside of that, not really. And then um, applied this whole process and got into the Naval Academy prep school for a year. Uh, and then went to the Naval Academy for four years down in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, uh, service selected the Marine Corps from there. I actually originally selected Marine pilot, but I got disqualified uh, because I had some issues with asthma, childhood asthma. Uh, so I ended up taking doing Marine ground training there. I became a logistics officer in the Marine Corps. I was in for five years out of 29 Palms, California at an infantry unit out there. Actually, very similar to Sean's unit, Cav Scout, uh, in the in – the, um, a Marine Corps called uh, LAR, Light Airman Reconnaissance. And did you deploy overseas as well? Nope, I was stateside. Yep. Okay. So I'm going to 
pose the next question to Lance first and then Sean. The, what, this is like a double-sided question I ask anyone who was actually, you know, overseas during combat. And I think it, it's very pertinent, obviously, with, with our discussion today as well. Um, the first part is regardless of the politics that sent you over there, because, I mean, you know, whether it's the fire service or the military, we don't have a choice. You're just told to go mm-hmm. there. Was there a moment when you got to, whether it was Iraq, whether it was Afghanistan, where you witnessed with your own eyes that there were people whether it was doing to you know to their own people to to your fellow soldiers um that needed to be taken care of so you know that kind of uh you know sheepdog in that community once you'd actually been deployed there uh so you're asking if there were people that i saw that needed to be taken care of whether they were locals in that country or soldiers on my own team yeah almost like was there an aha moment so you go in there you've been told this is where you're gonna go you know you have this kind of maybe this preconceived idea of what's going to be like but then i get many many stories of people that just just start witnessing things whether it's atrocities or you know whatever it is um and then it kind of recalibrates okay yes we've been sent but also while i'm here in this place I see that there are people that definitely are, you know, preying on the weak and need to be addressed. Uh, yes, I did see that. And it was, uh, if I remember correctly, my first tour was in 2004. So many, many, many years ago. Um, so yes, about halfway through maybe three, maybe four to six months through my first tour. Yeah. I started noticing that. Um, yeah, there was going to be needing some help for quite a, large number of people so and was it were there any particular scenarios I mean, just for example you know we have people who you know we started witnessing um in iraq you know the, the some of the special needs children that were chained in the back there were you know people being thrown off buildings because of their sexual orientation there were the you know the honor killings and um I and mean, i don't need gory details but was was there a kind of like pivotal moment you're like okay the, these 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 regular Iraqis or regular Afghanis are trying to live their life, and this particular extremist group are preying upon them. Um, the extremist groups affecting the local. Uh, I'll talk um, about my first tour in Iraq. I was uh, near to crit. Um, most of my time when deployed on Iraq, we were doing night raids um, because it was bloody hot in Iraq. Um, so the the locals, the local forces were, um, lack of a better term, torturing the locals. So yes, I saw that. And also on our behalf, um, the scene that keeps, that pops in my head with this is, um, like I said, we did night raids. We came in middle of night, kicking down doors and flashlights, four or five guys, barrels drawn down on locals. And the fear, the sheer terror in these individuals eyes with, us coming through the door. Uh, and I would say most of the individuals that we came on were, depending on what your definition is, were innocent. Um, so yeah, we affected a, a quite a few number of people over there that probably had a long lasting effect. So yes, to my, to your question. So I normally, um, bring into that question a little, a little better. And this is what I've missed out. When we, the civilian population, are told about war, we're given a very polarizing view. One is very pro-war, kill them all, let God sort them out. The other one is you're all a bunch of baby killers. And, you know, you have the 90% in the middle that don't get a voice. Um, So this is why I think it's important to hear from the people that were over there. 
the other side of the question, which is equally as important, is amidst all, you know, this combat, were there moments of kindness and compassion that you saw amongst that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, um, so a lot of times we did night raids, but um, many times we did day raids and it was just, you know, it was uh, just going around, knocking on doors, saying hi, stuff. So there, there was a connection with, um, with the troops and the locals um, out of compassion. And it wasn't always kick down doors, barrels and faces and shooting shit. All right. So Sean, same question. So firstly, you know, again, you're, you're over there. Were there any kind of aha moments of, um, you know, just addressing evil for lack of a better word? How, there's this giant tractor that literally just showed up. So I apologize if there's some background noise. No, you're good. Um, perfect. So yeah, when I remember getting there and the first four months we were up on an OP, so an observation post, and so most of most of what we were seeing was not face to face and like during we were during fighting season which in afghanistan it seemed to be year round um so like yeah we were getting shot at they were trying to blow us up do all the fun stuff that they were doing and we didn't really see that face to face until we were back or down on the ground doing foot patrols and then even when i got on the ground like there was it, it was a very confusing experience because some t like Based off of my experience growing up in the States, you know, I saw like living conditions and what was going on and, and, you know, immediately my mind was like, man, this is, this is rough. Um, and at the same time, there was also a lot of peaceful interaction. And so the, the one moment that sticks out to me was, it was actually towards the end of my deployment where, uh, we, we went into a valley and, uh, we're doing some operations and the helicopters went in a little bit further had you know possibly i did some targets and so we were just watching from afar seeing the explosions and less than 24 hours later this actually came up on cnn we found out so like the taliban had had claimed that uh we were shooting at women and children and so they were showing photos and videos and like you could see all these burn marks uh, especially on the women and what we came what what we ended up finding out was what they were doing was they were actually like pouring boiling water on them to imitate burns and so like that for me was the aha moment of like okay like war is just a really messed up situation in general but to see that and then because we were also able to see some of the footage from our own helicopters of what was going on and so like when i saw that uh, that's like that, would, that just it sank my heart um like to see they so easily would do these things. And we knew that they were using children to shield themselves. So like if we were to come through on a patrol, like we like you would always see a bunch of children and the children always seemed happy. And then as soon as we would come back, for instance, like if we're uh, especially if we're in like convoy and the children were gone, like we already knew we're like, OK, something's about to happen. And there was definitely no regard to, you know, the local village people or anything like that. Like if there was ever any firefights, like it was just all hell broke loose. And so like that was like the one moment in particular. And then also I remember uh, it, it was mostly through the chatter. Like we got a lot of audio uh, that we were catching from, you know, from the people that were shooting at us. And so like just hearing the things that we were saying from our translator, um, like they were purposely, like I said, trying to use women and children to, to shield themselves or to maneuver and stuff like that, knowing that we wouldn't engage. And even though we were getting shot at, like I said, it was almost a daily basis for most of what I remembered uh, during that deployment. 
like there was also a lot of just peace and I remember like trying to communicate with the children them coming up to us um, and yeah like I said it was it was just very confusing because like obviously they're shooting at us they're trying to blow us up and at the same time like we saw like we did see peace and even though the, the quality of living we might judge as like oh this is lesser than like many of them did also seem to be content and yeah, we, we conducted lots of uh, lots of interviews, like going into the local villages, local towns, and you know, meeting with the elders. And unfortunately, you know, most of it was about you know they wanted more money, and um, you know, we, we were trying to build schools and and other things to try to help the infrastructure, and just wasn't able to take take hold because as soon as we would do something, the Taliban would come in and then basically tell them, hey, if you keep supporting them, then we're going to kill you and your family. So like it was it was like this constant back and forth, and so we just were never able to really gain a foothold or gain any traction. And uh, yeah, I I don't even fault the locals for like continuing to flip sides because like yeah, we're coming in trying to help, and at the same time, the people we're trying to help them against are basically threatening them. So it's like you know if you receive their help, we'll kill you, or we'll kill your family, we'll kill your 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 children. And so yeah, it was it was like I said, lots of I saw a lot of action in that sense, and it, it was just mostly confusing, especially as a twenty year old kid like going over there thinking like oh we're here to do all these great things and then it's just you get immersed in it. it's like man what the hell is actually going on here so yeah that that's more or less what i how i would describe the experience at this point yeah well i appreciate it because we need to hear these voices i don't know if you've ever um read sebastian Junger's work tribe uh he talks about the veterans town hall and it's funny i tried to stand that up in my town and went to the veterans did a whole um presentation and then never heard from them again but then it suddenly occurred to me well this is the veterans town hall these conversations are the chance for you guys to tell stories and for the civilians of the world to hear you know the good the bad and the ugly of what we're asking what are effectively children to do with our flag on their shoulder you know and and it's very important i think and you know what which elements worked I think World War II is a great example of, you know, all that service and sacrifice truly having an effect. And then, you know, sadly, Afghanistan, for example, you know, there's, there's maybe not quite the same, you know, cause and effect. And then that leaves our veterans with this feeling of, you know, w- what was that for? And so I think when we reflect on stories like you're telling, it reminds the veterans, well, at that moment in time, you did make a difference. And those children in the community, you know, so I, I thank you both for, for sharing that. Now, John, not taking you away just because you didn't deploy. Um, another, you know, big area is no matter where we are in this kind of, uh, you know, grand machine that is a military or the first responder profession, we're still part of that unit. I see a lot of people start to struggle when they transition out, whether it's through injury, whether they're fired, whether it's retirement, whether it's even promotion to a desk away from their men and women. Um, what, made you decide you want to transition out of the Marines? And then what was that transition like for you? <laughs> um, great question. Uh, it's one of my favorite questions. And also a uh, really deep one. Um, the first thing I'll say is that uh, people, most of veterans like to have a conversation around having a successful transition, quote unquote. And uh, I don't, believe that you can have a metric for what a successful transition is or isn't. Um, most of what's out there right now is, did you get a job? You know, do you have a, a place to live? Uh, do you have a family? Are you have, are you in a community? So it's, it's like all the surface level stuff that, uh, 
you know, it, it is important. I'm not saying it's not. And also it, it barely starts to peel back the layers of what happens uh, during that, what I call a, a transition in identity more than, more than like I'm out of the military. Um, so, you know, for me, my experience was uh, what, what, what started to prompt some of the bigger questions of whether I, want, I wanted to do this uh, actually came out of both my experience in the military. You know, I was actually disenfranchised at the time because I didn't deploy, because I couldn't deploy. Uh, so I was, a, I was a young lieutenant uh, working my ass off in my platoon and then later on working in the battalion. So as a logistics officer, I was staff. So I, I got out of leading like platoons and, and men directly and to being on a staff with a really small team, maybe three, um, right away. Like, so uh, my experience was a lot more uh, looking at how the unit uh, managed their maintenance. I started looking at budgeting. So I started to see like the machinery of the military really young. I was probably, yeah, I must've been 24 or so, 24. Um, and then becoming a battalion logistics and just seeing kind of the larger scope, like doing military exercises, understanding like how we move things across the world. Um, you know, I would send guys on deployment. Our, our unit deployed as smaller companies to, uh, at the time, Okinawa, because we, uh, the Marine Corps had vastly pulled out of uh, Afghanistan, Iraq at the time. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm doing all this training. It's just kind of circular. And then a couple things happened. One was that what I started seeing was a transition between these um, unconventional warfare that we were fighting in Afghanistan to now doing near peer uh, threat uh, training. So China, Russia, etc. Um and so as our training started to shift and as our tactics, you know, the tactics largely remained the same, but it was, it was how we were talking about the enemy, what kind of intel we were receiving. Um, I started to see like what I saw was a, um, a transition from one enemy to another. Like we, we literally changed our view from like, oh, there's that enemy. Now that we have a different enemy. And so, you know, as a country, as a nation, uh, military forces is – that's an important part of it. And as a human being in that machine, I was like, well, you literally just switched from one bad guy to another bad guy uh, without, there's no war with those people at all. There's some, you know, some cold stuff happening in Ukraine or whatever, but there's no active conflict in those areas yet. Um, and so, uh, you know, my journey to realizing that we were constantly in preparation for war made me think that, um, you know, there was, you know, for me, it's always macro. I always thought macro. Like, so then there's no solution to the war ending. There's just always a different war. Um, and so I was like, man, I didn't sign up. I don't know what I signed up for, but this isn't what it is. I signed up to lead. Uh, you have these like huge ideals when you're in college, especially at the Naval Academy. Everybody's blowing smoke up your ass about how you're the cream of the crop and, and the best of the best. And you go out into the services and like you get to meet, you know, guys like Sean and Lance who actually are more like me in terms of my background than the rest of my fellow officers. But, um, you know, and realizing like looking at it in the micro, like here are the guys I'm training day after day after day, doing the cyclical training. And then uh, here are the stories I'm hearing about what Afghanistan was like, the sort of macro, again, perspective. I was a political science major at the academy. So I, I had taken a ton of classes on this stuff, but it didn't really start to make sense until I was there. And I was like, understanding it from the policy perspective and then from the like actually small unit leadership uh, and tactical perspective. So that shifted a lot for me. And then I went to a course uh, at UNC Chapel Hill where I did a month long strategy course 
Um, at the time, I was like top ranked lieutenant in my battalion. My you know, executive officer, my boss was like, hey, man, you're doing great. We want you to you know, expand your, your uh, knowledge and your, your capacity to do a strategy at a larger level. Um, so I wore a lot of hats in my unit. I was the logistics officer, but I also did a bunch of collateral stuff. And I also ran the, the combat operations center like in training. Um, so basically just, you know, the, where we have all the screens and you're managing the battlefield. So I ran that, uh, uh, you know, with my uh, operations officer. So anyway, I basically took the strategy thing, went to UNC, did this larger perspective. And that course really opened my eyes to the larger scope of what's happening you know, I went from my undergrad sort of high, high level stuff uh, politically, then to like small unit level stuff, like what are we actually training to do? And then um, connected it in the middle between business and um, the business of the military industrial complex. So that course was really about like how um, the military is funded, how uh, the, the national security uh, council works, how... Uh, we send troops abroad, how uh, political uh, 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 parties are funded, think, like really, really broad perspectives, intelligence. We talked a lot about intelligence agencies. And so I started, again, zooming out and realizing like the, the industry that is supporting the, the sort of machinery of war. Um, and I was really disenfranchised, honestly. Like I, I didn't know how to hold those two perspectives. I didn't know how to hold the paradox of like, I'm leading Marines all the time. Like we might go to war in the next couple of years and that's like my daily job. And at the same time, we're wasting a shit ton of money uselessly, uh, even in my own unit, just the amount of stuff that would fucking go to waste and how we didn't even take care of our equipment properly. Um, and, and, you know, the Marine Corps is doing a lot with little. I can't imagine the Army, how much freaking uh, money those guys got. Um, and so, again, I started seeing it from the larger perspective. And then at this point, I'm like having a crisis of faith. Uh, I've been in like maybe three years and I'm like, everything I believed is, is, not, is, is not true. It's not capital T true like I thought. And then so that I decided at that time that I wanted to leave the military because um, I just I didn't want to go, you know, to, to be truthful. I, I had seen what uh, studied what had happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I was like, I don't want to be involved in these conflicts. And at the same time, I'm really committed to my Marines and like what we're doing. And so that was difficult to hold, like doing, you know, working and supporting my Marines and at the time working really hard. And then at the same time being like, I, I want to get out of here uh, and explore, explore the world a little bit more. Uh, and for me, I was also stationed in the, in the middle of the desert with no deployments. So I was just like cyclically doing training. I think I did like eight of the, of like our unit, you know, preparations for deployments. Uh, and I got really good at it, but it was boring as hell. Um, it was uh, in the middle of the desert, not a lot to do out there. So I didn't have much of a social life outside of the Marines. Uh, and then, um, you know, I, I had been promised to travel and see the world and all this stuff. And I was at school at the academy and I just didn't get to do that in the military. So I was, I was pretty sick of it on a couple of different fronts. Um, and then also the, the came with that is like the shame of not having deployed uh, the, the shame you feel after like finishing a, uh, you know, your five years and being like, what do I even have to show for this? And so um, transitioning out, I was completely ready to just be free. Honestly, I really, I didn't want to go, a lot of officers end up going into the corporate realm, getting kind of straight laced uh, suit jobs. And I was like, ah, nah, bro, I don't want to do that shit. So uh, I ended up uh, deciding to just sell all my stuff, sold my car, and I just planned a, a backpacking trip. I got inspired that I wanted to travel more, uh, sold all my stuff and decided to do a one-year travel backpacking trip in Europe. Uh, starting in Europe, and then I was going to go to South America after that. Um, 
And that journey ended in, I ended about, about three months. So my transition then took me to Austin, Texas. Uh, I, you know, my transition a lot was about like, I wanted to explore way more than just like leading and, and being in this kind of stuffy environment where your, your identity is sort of like a small little box. Like you exist right here. You work out, you, you, you train hard. That's your life. Um, and so I went to Austin, Texas. I learned how to play guitar. I started writing poetry. I really expanded my um, creativity during that time. And I, that's when I started coaching, actually. Uh, coached lacrosse for a while, did that. COVID happened. Uh, that ran out of options in Austin, Texas. And at that point, and to be honest, out of fear and also um, this desire, this inner desire to want to do, to want to expand myself as well as like, honestly programming to want to be successful in America as an immigrant. Um, I, uh, decided to go work for one of those big consulting firms that I had been avoiding when I got out. Uh, so I completely, again, shift, shifted to another identity, you know, cut my hair, went to work, did that whole thing, made, made, you know, six figures, um, moved here to DC actually. And so that's year two, uh, <laughs> Uh, did that and realized in that process that I was back into very similar patterns. I was in, I was a uh, management consulting for uh, government agencies in DC. Oh, it's like the same language again, talking to the same type of people, dealing with the same similar problems, except now I'm getting paid a shit ton of money to do actually like 10% of what I used to do in the military. Um, and so again, my whole life has been about like, or it seems to be a trajectory of looking at the macro again, because now I'm looking at like the, uh, defense industrial complex from the perspective of the people who support it. Um, and so I'm looking at sort of the trends in there and just getting, again, disenfranchised. And I'm asking myself, what the fuck am I doing here again in this type of environment? Um, and, you know, so there were a lot, there were a lot, the transition period was this huge ton of discovery. And in that period, you know, I, I talked a little bit about my different hats that I wore and um, the identities that I took on and realizing that, what fundamentally happened for me was uh, an externalization of my identity to what I wore or what I did or how I showed up in the world. And what has helped me now uh, transition from truly transition has been a, a regaining and a reestablishing of my own sovereignty and being able to really stand in my own, in myself and I, identifying, seeing identity as a process, not as a, like a, a place you land at. Um, and that has really helped me in, in that transition and honestly continues to, to enrich my life. Well, I want to just jump on a tangent seeing as you seem very well versed in it. And please, by all means, Sean and Lance jump in as well. So my kind of world, I get a very, very um, unique view on the health of this country and what works and what doesn't. And what I've sadly seen, I know it you know, ties into chiropractic and other areas, <clears throat> is the the uh, behemoth that is chronic disease management medication and, you know, fast food and, you know, um, monocrop mega farming and all these other elements have fed into, you know, 70% obese and overweight Americans, which I think is absolutely heartbreaking. And when you see that there's so much money to be made on sick people, there's no money in healthy people or dead people, um, where's the push to make people healthier? Case in point, the last two years, where's a discussion on nutrition and fitness, you know, might drop. Um, now, you know, with not being in the military, but with the layman's eyes, I see the same thing in the military. 
as I mentioned, you know, World War Two. I mean, we had no choice. We absolutely had no choice. But what scares me is if there are companies that make a huge amount of money when we're at war, where is that kind of um, restraint to stop us going into another conflict, another conflict, and sending our men and women who come back in coffins covered in flags when there are companies making a huge amount of money? We have to equip the soldiers. We have to, you know clothe and, and feed the soldiers. But, you know, how do we find that middle ground where we are defending our country and responding when we need to, but at the same time, not kind of team world, team America world policing it and constantly at war? Yeah, that's a really big question. <laughs> <laughs> we could, we could write a dis, we could write a couple dissertations about that. Um, uh, the the way I like to think about it now is, I like to I like to separate the warrior from the war, um, because here's the problem: like if we all start looking at the at the geopolitics and the uh, political interest and the financial interest in war, man, that is a deep rabbit hole that uh, uh, <laughs> you can find a lot of darkness, and and it, it doesn't even have to be conspiracy theory, like I, you know. Here's an example. Uh, there, there's a PhD guy who, when I was at UNC, he wrote a book and he, and he came to give us a talk about it, about um, uh, lobbying, uh, foreign governments lobbying, uh, funding political campaigns through lobbying firms. And he had like the full breakdown of like per year, how much money uh, these co- political candidates received uh, from like Saudi Arabia and Libya and Iraq and these different places. Uh, for their campaigns and like you, you know it was like everybody it was like left right obama bush everybody and so you know uh from that perspective from the macro perspective you start to see that there's a lot of fuckery on, on all levels there's like you know uh, uh companies like raytheon and some of the companies that, that i had worked tangentially with uh here in dc like um you see that it's an entire machinery that exists to support with this idea of supporting the warfighter, which is true. And also it's a company with shareholders who has interests, right? And so there's a lot of things that are being done just purely out of profit. And so in order to separate like the war from the warrior, uh, it, it also allows us as warriors or as veterans um, to say like, hey, listen, man, it doesn't matter what the war was about, how you ended up there, like, what was behind it? What were the forces? It's an important thing to think about once you've actually dealt with yourself and sat with yourself and your own crisis of identity and the issues that you're having. Because if you're not filling your cup, if you're not capable of actually being with yourself and thriving in, in, in our life after you've been in the military, those questions you're asking about that kind of area is just going to lead you into darker and darker holes because you're going to create you're going to create invisible enemies that really don't affect your day-to-day life. Um, they they do exist. Let me let me say that again. They do exist. They're real. And um, for most warriors and for most veterans, it's important for us to look, you know, peel peel ourselves away from from those conversations first, and take a look within ourselves and say, like, hey, how am I living? What is what is this not allowing me to do? And and um, you know, one of the conversations that we often have around this stuff is. Uh, are you collapsing a distinction between service and sacrifice? And this is, I'm sure, things that you can have a conversation in the firefighter community, but um, can you be of service without sacrificing? Is that possible? 
And in our culture, especially in our specific kind of groups in the military, veterans and, and first responders, it, we don't have a clear distinction between those two. They're like kind of enmeshed. Like, uh, you know, you, 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 to sacrifice is considered valuable, but we say like, I want to be of service. Um, so that conversation to me is way more uh, valuable for the veteran to start really thinking about like, can I be of service in the world as a leader, in my community, et cetera, without constantly punishing myself and sacrificing the way they taught me to do in the military? Um, so that's kind of a short answer to a very, very large question. No, no but it's beautiful and it does, it's pertinent as well. I mean, we're basically talking about things that I know people struggle with and that's one of them. Um, any of you guys want to add anything before we kind of circle around to Lance's transition? <laughs> John, very well said. Um, yeah, I mean, like the question being asked, like like John had mentioned, it's, just, it's, it's very dynamic and very nuanced. And, you know, what comes up for me, you know, hearing about, you know, you, you mentioned like obesity and, and like the general health and like it's just taken advantage of. I think there's so many like in, <clears throat> in relation to the military, I think there's just a lot of stories that have been perpetuated that people aren't examining. And so I think if, you know, if, if to try to give an answer is if we can start to examine some of these stories about what the military is, what we're doing, why we're doing what we're doing and teach people individuals from a younger age more critical thinking and more self-reflection first because oftentimes what i have found is that people join the military based off of like these old stories of what they think you know it's all about and what they're doing and they don't really learn more accuracy or you know what's really going on until they're in and by that point it's too late and so it just seems to be this perpetual cycle of you join you do the thing and then you know we this is questions that you know Lance, John, and myself have been asking for for years. It's like why why is the veteran population the way that it is? And you can see through these discussions that there's just so much going on. And yeah, it's it, there isn't a, a cut and dry answer. You know, the if we want to talk about mental health, even it's like at, most of our resources are falling short. And so, you know, something that I've sat with and pondered and contemplated is like how early on can we start having this discussion? And I think that that's the direction that we would be best served in is like, can we start having conversations like this with, with individuals? And it's not just about war. It's like John said, it's like, can we self-reflect? Can we sit with and take in information and then like be able to question it and be able to do so without the pushback or the, the, the blowout of being like, hold on, wait a minute, especially as a veteran, it's like, if we ask ourselves and we do this publicly, like, why are we over there? Like they catch a lot of flack, like, Oh, you're un-American, you're unpatriotic and all these things. And it's hard for people to grasp that there's just so much going on and it's hard to not tie in, especially like you said, like the money side of things. It's like people are, are making millions and billions of dollars off of the backs Tr trillions, of kids. Trillions. Yeah. Trillions. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, the logistic officer has better numbers than I do. <laughs> Clearly you made an error. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, through that lens, it's like, can we start having these conversations earlier? And, you know, it, maybe this is pertinent, maybe it's not. Like, after I got out of the military, I ended up uh, owning a CrossFit gym. So, like, I was at the forefront of the health of our nation, right? Like, seeing it firsthand, like what was going on and and i even dated someone who was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder and she was what we would have deemed as perfectly healthy and yet it, it ravaged her um and it just left me being like 
how is this still happening? You know, of all these years, of all the technology that we have and all the research has been done, like, how come this isn't, like, why is this still not landing for people? And again, like the, the conversation about money comes back into play. So it's like, it's like we're taking all these conversations and more often than not, we see we just end up talking ourselves in circles. And so like, that's what continues to lead me back to like, okay, how, like, can we start having this conversation earlier in this process instead of waiting until it's already too late, waiting until we're already at another war, waiting until we're already unhealthy. And like, as I got into coaching veterans, I remember communicating this with, with Lance even, I was like, I don't see myself as being beneficial to working with military members because the conversations I want to have, like my initial thought was like, they're not going to want to be in the military anymore. And so like through that lens, like we've been sitting with that question, like, is it possible to have all of these things, like to have a military that is, I don't, I don't know if ethical is the best word. Um, like the idea that comes to mind is like a conscious warrior, right? Someone who understands the dynamic of the world and understands that there are these horrible, horrible things that happen. Like we, those of us that are deployed or just in any profession have seen this shit happen. Like we understand that it does exist. So how is it that you can have both? It's, a, it's almost like a paradox, right? It's like, we understand that we're perpetuating it by being a part of the system. And at the same time, like if we end the system, it's not going to end everything else that's, that is also going on in the world. So like for me, it's like how, like, can we start having better conversations, start asking better questions? And we're seeing that this clearly is not possible with the people who are calling the shots. Like, I, I don't know. It sounds to me, it's that they don't want to hear it or they understand what's going on and they don't give a shit. Like I, it's, it's hard to win in that situation. So, you know, similar again to what John was saying is like, can we start having this conversation on an individual level? Because like the one thing that I do understand is that the way that I live my life and the way that I show up and, and what I have to offer to the world is the best way to influence the people around me. It's not by trying to tell them anything or to try to get them to change anything. Like the best thing I could do is show up in it. And so again, it's like, come back, like how early can we start having these conversations? How early can we start the process of like real, true, like deep, meaningful self-reflection and these ponderings and, and contemplation as opposed to just like, well, this is just the way the world is. I'm going to plug myself into the system and so be it, right? Which is what I imagine is mostly what's happening. So yeah, that that's that's more of where my mind goes instead of because I've gone down the rabbit hole similarly and it's been very it could get it get it does. It gets very dark very quick. And like the more people that I meet that have also been through similar situations or you know anything like that, like I I've I've talked with people who are even like CIA, like 20 plus years special forces, like done some really crazy stuff. And like even hearing their stories, I'm like, "Oh, this is happening everywhere." And yeah, so it's just yeah, for me it's like how can we start having better conversations? And I think most importantly is the people who are being looked at or looked to for answers, start asking better questions. Because if we keep doing the same thing that we're doing, right? Was this the Albert Einstein quote? Like if you keep doing the same thing and getting the same results, like the, the definition of an insanity. So it's like, fine, ask better questions instead of just accepting what it is. So that, that's, that's where I lean to, at least at this point. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And I think it's, it's really important. Questioning, I think, is is exactly what we need to do. We've had our information fed and filtered to us in these little kind of microbursts for so long. 
you know, the moment you get, for example, I talked about this in my last interview too, you know, you get Joe Rogan who has open long form conversations and challenges the, the status quo. And I don't agree with everything he does. I can't stand it when he has debates with two guests. Drives me crazy. Like you're never going to win an, you know, an argument, but you know, there's so much value and there's so much value in being in a conversation that you don't agree with to, to kind of solidify your opinion. But it's those long form, well thought out conversations that we need and you think about our kind of outlets they don't exist anywhere and i think now with podcasts with documentaries we we get to not be able to interrupt and therefore just listen and process and then have discussions about you know books and podcasts and documentaries and you know with our friends and our colleagues and really start to go huh and you, i i just find that you just you know you've got these extremes over and over again i'm not a fan of the left or the right i can't stand to meet either of them the middle ground is is usually where you find the truth and you know so it's it's great to hear you know i mean john and, and sean your perspectives are are very different but they're within the same machine so it's it's a brilliant brilliant conversation so Lance, I want to bring you in because <laughs> you've been sitting right. there. <laughs> um, so speaking of wellness, your transition story obviously, you know, um, was into an incredibly proactive uh, profession. So again, what what was the the kind of element that made you decide to transition out of the army, and then why medicine? Uh, so the the transition out of the military was uh, for me. Uh, there were several parts. Um, halfway through my contract, I did not agree with what we were doing uh, politically, so on and so forth. Um, and I, I asked a lot of questions, a lot of questions. And as an enlisted uh, individual, they don't like questions. So I, I didn't mix well um, there. What transitioned me into uh, chiropractic was... Um, even back in high school, I, I wanted to back in high school, I wanted to be a massage therapist. And I was like, nah, I don't want to do that. Um, then I shifted towards maybe I'll become a physical therapist. Um, and I, I went to enough physical therapists in the military and they were not helpful for me. Um, my last tour in Afghanistan, I had really horrible anterior hip pain. And I went the typical route. I went to the med shed. I went to physical therapy. I got x-rays. I got MRIs. And at one point they said, I want to do exploratory surgery. And I said, fuck no. Um, at that point, um, my brother said, hey, why don't you come see one of my uh, chiropractors? My brother owned a CrossFit gym at the time. So he had access to a lot of different uh, chiropractors. And within 30 minutes, the chiropractor was able to significantly decrease pain and tell me exactly what was going on. I was like, fuck, I'm sold. Um, so I ended up going uh, to chiropractic school and um, becoming a chiropractor. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? I forgot what your question was. No, no. Actually. It was the transition app. Well, firstly, I'm curious. So, so what was the issue? Was it anterior pelvic tilt? Were you, were you shortened in the posterior side? God, I don't even remember. I think it was, it was, uh, it was tight hip flexors, which, God, I wish, come on, any physical therapist or any CrossFit trainer nowadays could probably figure that out. Um, it, was, it was tight anterior uh, hip flexors and weak um, posterior extensors. So he had me do um, glute exercises and it worked. <laughs> I was like, okay, so simple. For, for me, it's simple now, but back then it was mind blowing. So... 
I would love to hear about your journey through chiropractic school specifically. I've had a lot of uh, physicians on. Actually, I just had um, Dr. Sean Rocket, who is the orthopedic surgeon for the CrossFit Games. Um, and, uh, you know, with him, with uh, there's another guy, EJ Caterson, who's a freaking insane plastic surgeon, but started as a firefighter EMT. Um, went a little bit further than I did. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, you hear about these stories of med school and in traditional med school, sadly, sleep, nutrition, exercise, you know, those are literally a week of, you know, what, a six-year program. Um, so kind of walk me through chiropractic school. How does it differ to traditional med school? Uh, I have no idea how it compares to med school because I never went to med school. Um, chiropractic school was a four-year program. Um, and it was, it was pretty, it, it was rough because it was a lot of studying. It was a lot of back to back. It was from seven in the morning till seven at night. And then you went back home and studied. Um, the first two ish years were a lot of, uh, book work, learning anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, all that. And then the second half was more hands-on and learning how to work with patients and technique and so on and so forth. Beautiful. Um, so what separates that profession from medicine when it comes to the, the proactive element? Oh, uh, I want to step on a lot of feet. Please. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, again, I don't know exactly. And from what I've under, what I understand is, um, the medical model is symptom care. What are your symptoms? How can we fix the symptoms? It's not taking care of the root cause. And even, you know, a large percentage of chiropractors are the same way. Oh, you have back pain. I'm going to crack your back. Well, that doesn't fix my back problem per se. Uh, we're covering up the symptoms. What caused the back problem? Uh, muscular imbalance? Is it inflammation? Is it, uh, the list can go on and on. So um, I'm not saying medical doctors are bad and chiropractors are great. I, I think there's a lot of problems in the whole medical model, regardless of symptom, sim, symptom care. Now, have you heard of Dr. Eric Goodman foundation training? No, I have not. Uh, well, speaking of posterior chain, you have to look him up. So he was a chiropractor or is a chiropractor, okay. excuse me. But um, he, very long story, was a, was a PT back in the day, um, physical trainer or personal trainer, excuse me, totally screwed up his back, super heavy lifting and everything. Um, and was about to go to, well, I think it was in chiropractic school and was about to have surgery. And he had this kind of aha moment, like, what am I doing? How am I going to tell these people about chiropractic when I got this big scar at the back of my, uh, you know, spine there? Um, so he took his training knowledge um, and then did a deep dive into Pilates and yoga and all these these different disciplines and created this thing called foundation training. It looks a little bit like yoga, but you're basically lengthening you know, the, the posterior anterior chain, but at the same time using the body to actually strengthen as well. So you're adding levers to it. I had a near career ending back injury and it was chiropractic and foundation training that saved my back. And I was offered opiates and surgery. So yeah, just a little testimony there how good chiropractic is. Uh, I, I want to bring up this topic. I, I bring it up anytime um somebody comes in with any x-rays, MRI, CT scans, or I refer out for any kind of imaging. Uh, it's an acronym I use on a daily basis. And the acronym is VOMIT, V-O-M-I-T. And it stands for Victim of Medical Imaging Technology. 
Um, so many people come in and they say, I, I got an x-ray that shows I got degeneration in my low back. And then they, they hang their head, their hat on that diagnosis. All my back pains coming from degeneration. Well, the pain is extremely complex. And to say everything is coming from a snapshot in time is very ignorant and very close-minded. Um, I'm, I'm off my soapbox now. <laughs> Whatever. Well, no, just uh, to underline that, Eric shows his MRIs, his recent MRIs, and he's completely out of pain, but yeah, yep. there's still damage, you know, because, I, I, you know, yep. it, but you've created that, that column of strength, you know, the mobility mm-hmm. and the strength to support the, the spine the way it's supposed to be. So the nerves aren't being pushed on and therefore there's no pain. So, yeah. I, I tell my patients anytime they, oh, so many people come in with bulged, quote unquote, bulged disc, and I say, I don't care. I really do not care at all because I'm treating the patient. I'm not treating the diagnosis. Absolutely. Well, with just, I think the other part of the question that we we skipped, the transition out, as you went from the army, obviously you had deployments. I mean, there's so many layers to, you know, to what causes us to struggle. Um, what was your transition like for you? Was there, we, did you jump both feet into chiropractic so that became like the next tribe or was there some some issues? Um, my transition out of the military was, I think, like many other people, was quite hectic. Um, I, I got back from a deployment and they gave me a sheet of paper. They said, go get some signatures, get out. And if I had time, I could take a class on how to write a resume. Um, I ended up getting my uncle owned a telephone installation business. I ended up installing phones. Um, it wasn't until about a year and a half later where I ended up going to undergrad to begin my schooling process. So the chiropractic school was not right away after uh, leaving the military. And did that have any kind of mental health issues that came along with it? What, transitioning out of the military? Transitioning out from a tight-knit group of men that had a purpose initially, even if you disagree with the politics behind it, into installing telephones. Uh, Yeah, yes. Um, So... Um, my, I I call it my healing journey. Um, when I got out of the military, I was the, the typical like alpha male, like there's nothing wrong with me. I'm good. Um, fast forward a few years later when I was going through chiropractic school, um, one of my friends was, uh, he spent three years in the coast guard on the beaches of Costa Rica doing absolutely nothing, his words. And when he got out of the military, he got 70% disability. And we were talking about disability. I got no disability when I got out. And he looked at me, he's like, Lance, with what you did, you need to get your disability reassessed. Um, so that started un, like unpeeling the onion in my life. Um, so I went up to the Disabled American Veterans, um, DAV. I think they're in pretty much every major city. And they helped me, train, um, they helped me navigate the reassessing of my um, disability. And I talked to an individual and he, um, he's like, oh, you should get your knees checked out. You should get your shoulders. You got to get your hearing, hearing checked out. Oh, you've been deployed. You should get, you know, checked out for PTSD. Uh, and I was like, okay, there's nothing wrong with me, but I'll, I'll do it. And then he gave me the sheet of paper. It was basically a cheat sheet said for 10% disability for PTSD. This is what they look for. This is what they look for at 30%. This is what they look for at 50%. So I I was going through chiropractic school at the time. I knew how to study. So I took the cheat sheet and I was like, oh, I can cheat this system. I'm going to try to get the most percentage out of it as I can. Um, 
fast forward, I walk into an office with a um, psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever, uh, for my reassessment for PTSD. And um, I walked in there and I was ready. I had the cheat sheet memorized. I had all the key words and everything. Um, and he asked me a bunch of questions. And I walked out. I was like, fuck, maybe there is something wrong with me. Um, so at that point, um, I was going through school. Like I said, 12 hours a day on top of eight to 10 hours of study and whatever. I had no time to take care of myself. So I was like, okay, my mental health had to go on the back burner at that point. Got out of school, um, was a practicing doctor. I was like, okay, I can take care of myself now. Um, and I didn't know where to start. So I went to the VA and really quickly going to the VA. Um, I didn't feel like I was listened to. Uh, I didn't feel like they were, they weren't beneficial to me. And I felt like they just wanted to push meds on me the whole time. Um, and at that point, uh, like I said, I was a practicing physician and I treat headaches all the time and I'm pretty good at treating headaches. Uh, and I, I went in one day, I was like, I'm not sleeping well. And I have constant headaches. And my counselor said, or counselor therapist said, oh, that's normal. And right there, I said, we're done. I didn't say it to her, but I said, we're done. And in my head, I said, that's common. That's not normal. There's a big difference. Um, so that led me down. I, I, I said, I'm done here. You guys don't know what the fuck you're doing. You're doing symptom care. You're not treating the problems. Um, that led me down the rabbit holes of looking into TBIs, looking into diet, looking into sleep, looking into self-development, so on and so forth. Um, and it's all been history from there. It's been a blast from there. And that was my starting point. Beautiful. Well, Sean, I want to make sure that we get your transition story out before we get into, you know, the genesis of Rising Warrior and talking about some of the, the, uh, you know, the treatments that you guys are offering, some maybe some of the shortcomings of some of the traditional outlets that people go to. So you, what was the, the reason that you decided to transition out? And again, what was your kind of uh, post-service uh, first couple of years? Yeah, so <clears throat> my deployment was at the end of, it was towards the end of my my initial contract. And so I was, I was a big part of it was like, okay, I, I joined, I, I deployed, I got to experience that, which was, that was part of my reason for joining was like, I wanted to go experience more of the world. And, and I just knew that there was more out there than, you know, my, my little town bubble. And so when I got back, uh, what really did it for me was there was, it, it became quite hectic. There was a lot of change of command, new first sergeant, new sergeant major, new commander, like people were just going in and out. And I remember my previous first, or so we'd actually had, we got a new commander, a new platoon leader and a new first sergeant all during deployment. And that didn't sit well with me. Cause I'm like, these are the, like, these are the leaders that I trained with for over a year to get ready for this and then deploy with them. And then all of a sudden they're just replacing them. And I remember our new first sergeant when he first came in, for instance, he was a tanker and very different mindset than what we were used to at the 101st, especially being in a light cav unit. And so there was, there was friction in the beginning. And thankfully he learned within like the first week, he's like, okay, instead of me just imposing my command on this, like I'm actually going to listen to to the guys that have been here for six, seven months. And so like he learned very quickly and like very appreciative of that. And then as soon as we get back, 
like he left, like they took him away, moving over to the support company. And we got our new first sergeant in, he couldn't pass his PT test. He took the platoons and completely rearranged them. Um, so here we just spent a year with the same guys and yet now he wants to go and just change everything up. And I was like, okay, well, this doesn't sit well with me either. And I was considering re reenlisting for like Germany. Like they're like, oh, well, you might be able to get Germany. And I was like, I, I don't like the word might. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that, that's not good enough for me. So Ooh, military order, roll of the dice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was also pretty salty because one of my good friends uh, had enlisted with the exact same contract. It was like whatever, three and a half years, calf scouts, fresh out of high school. And he got this huge signing bonus and I didn't get anything. And I was like, and this wasn't about the money. And like, how is that possible? Like, like this doesn't make sense. So I was very salty about that. Um, I, and then the deployment left me a little bit reeling. And I, so I made the choice. I was like, you know what? I'm going to call it good with this chapter of my life. I want to get out and go to school. Cause I, like, I still wanted to play baseball. I want to go experience college and, you know, getting the new first sergeant in and him just completely shaking everything up. Um, and then there was also, I noticed this transition to away from like the way that we were, operating within our within our troop within our unit you know it started to switch more towards like okay now we're looking at all this paperwork which i think might have been like the the correct way to go about it anyways but instead of being able to deal with soldiers in the way that we had been it was like nope you can't do anything like just write them their counseling statement and it just i saw that it wasn't gonna it, it wasn't beneficial and so i made the the choice to get out and yeah the first couple of years were very rough um Within two months of getting out, I, I went right to school and ended up moving from Southern California to Michigan because uh, my parents had just moved out there. And so I had a place to stay. There was a local college that had a decent baseball team. And like I, in, in my mind, I was like, I'm ready for something new. And I wanted seasons. Um, so I was like, cool, I'll go to Michigan. So I start school within two months and it had a very difficult time connecting with all the students, all the kids there. Like as soon as I show up, I'm the old guy because I'm 20, at this point I was 21 years old as a freshman, just starting college. Um, I had a riff with, with the baseball program because like they were holding, holding like my military service against me as if like, oh, we can't really let you play because you weren't here. And I was like, I'm sorry that I was actually deployed while all these other kids were practicing, you know, baseball. And they at least gave me the tryout. I made the team. And like the coach at the time was like, well, you're, you're really not going to play this year because it just wouldn't be fair to the other kids. And I was like, okay, whatever. I, I, I'm just happy to be playing baseball, right? Just got done with, with the deployment. And um, the school ended up being smaller than my high school. So it was just a lot of the same, the same bullshit that I dealt with, the same people talking to the same people, the same, the same groping and complaining and everything else. Um, I remember having a, a 10 a.m. class and having to listen to kids complain about how difficult it was to get up that early in the morning for school. Um, and so I was, I was just a very bitter person and I did a lot of drinking. Uh, I had just experienced a really rough breakup and transition. Like as I was leaving the military, I, I was dating someone and, and we had talked about, you know, her, she would actually have plans of moving out to the area cause she was actually from Kansas and like that went horribly so really heavy into the drinking i didn't make any friends everybody was super intimidated of me for you know i, I have tattoos for for anyone that that's listening out there like at this point I'd, I'd already started my sleeve so i imagine a little bit of that played into it 
And then, yeah, so I just, I stuck with school. Originally went for like pre-engineering because uh, I loved math and science at the time. And then I quickly found out that when you don't use sci- or math in particular for several years, it's not as easy to jump back into like algebra two or uh, uh, calculus. And so I was like, okay, let's, let's rethink this. And then within two years, I actually had an opportunity. Uh, someone asked if I wanted to buy this gym from them. And I didn't realize it was failing at the time. I had just started going to the gym because I liked this girl. And that was a gym that she went to. So go, I start my CrossFit journey. I uh, was having fun with that. And then the opportunity was presented. Uh, like I said, it, was, it wasn't even two years. It was about 13 months. So just over a year in. And I got asked if I wanted to buy it. And I had no business background, no coaching background. Uh, I just so happened to be good at CrossFit. And people were like coming to me and asking questions. I was like, uh, I don't know. And so I ran the idea by my dad. He was like, and it was, it was, a, it was a, a steal of a price. You know, looking back on it, I think I was still ripped off for in many ways. But at the same time, like it was still a steal. And my dad was actually the one that convinced me. He's like, you should do it. This will give me a retirement plan five years down the road. Like he just got into CrossFit. So I was like, all right, fine. I'll figure it out. Like that was the story that I had carried with me is that, I don't need help. I'll figure this out. And so similarly, as I was transitioning out, I was also told um, by people in my platoon that had transitioned out before and and later come back in. They're like, avoid the VA like the plague because they're not going to help you. And so I already had that mindset going into it. So I literally did the bare minimum uh, during my out processing time. And then even during that, like they just completely let me go. Like my, my unit didn't give a shit about me. There's like, whatever, go to your meetings. Like we're done with you. Um, I remember like there was, there was like other units that were like giving like awards of outstanding achievement and thank you for your service. And like my unit didn't give two shits. And so I was like, okay, like I just need to get out, sign the paperwork, give me my DD, my DD 214. So I, I just give me something else other than this. And so, um, similar to what Lance was saying, like, I was like, I'm fine. Like, uh, there's nothing wrong with me. I just, I'm a little angry. And like, why wouldn't I be? I'm dealing with kids all the time that are complaining about getting up at 9am. Like, this is just the way the world is right now. And so like, I never even went to the VA to try to get evaluated for anything. Um, and jumped right into school. So I had another structure and system uh, to fall into. And then the gym happened and CrossFit's very, very laid out. And so like it made it easy for me in that as well, because the gym already existed. So I, I wasn't starting from scratch. I, I didn't have to worry about too much. I, I paid my fees. I, I took my certification and passed and I started coaching and, you know, like on paper, it sounds crazy. And, and I would, you know, usually recommend to people like, don't follow someone that does that. And at the same time, like I'm, I'm internally grateful that people trusted me enough to jump into a role like that. Like I said, like having no business background, having no coaching background, still going to school. I was even playing baseball at the time and then running this business. I was coaching every class. I wore all the hats because like, that was my story. And like, even when I was in the military, that was my story. It was like, I'll just do this myself, which made me frowned upon when I was put into a team leader spot because they're like, go tell Joe, you know, private Joe to go do this thing. And I'm like, why would I have them do that after a 12 hour guard shift when like, I'm not doing shit. I can go do that. And like that ruffled feathers and it, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't highly looked upon. And so I carried that over, wore all the hats, coached all the classes and, and basically ran myself into the ground for about six years. And 
it, it took me, it took a failing relationship for me to like really open my eyes because I just accepted that I wasn't going to sleep normally again, that, you know, I was going to be able to run off of three to five hours of sleep and then wake up and do the same thing that I've been doing. Like, I, I just thought that was normal. And I was all, I was also a very reserved person. So the fact that I wasn't connecting with individuals, I just chalked that up as like, whatever, I'm just an introvert. And um, clearly, like nobody likes me, so I'll just keep doing my thing anyways. Found some community at, at, at the gym, which was great. Like I think that was one of the, the best things about CrossFit was the community that was developed. And you know, fitness was definitely like fitness was the catalyst to to healing and to even just opening my eyes to all these other things that were going on that I just chalked up as like this is the way that life is. Just going to be in pain for the rest of my life. My back's always going to hurt. I'm never going to sleep. Um, like all these things that I was dealing with and not really thinking, well, I, I had these ideas that, okay, this was because of the military while at the same time, I was so done with that experience that I didn't even want to bother with trying to see if maybe what I was experiencing was because of the military. Um, I remember even coming back and my mom, like she thought I, she thought I had PTSD before she even talked to me or heard from me, I just, I got back. She automatically assumed like I've heard enough stories. I've seen enough movies. I've, I've read enough articles that my son's going to have PTSD coming back. Cause like she knew that we were seeing combat and it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't an easy experience. And at the same time, I'm like, I'm guys, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. Like I can do this. Everything's, you know, peachy dory. And so, yeah, like I just, I jumped from one machine to another and didn't even realize it and just, you know, fell into school, fell into the gym. And like, it was easy to just let that stuff take the forefront of my experience instead of actually looking within and being like, okay, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why are you not sleeping well? Why are you struggling to do these things? Why are you struggling to connect? Why are you angry all the time? And again, like I was even having the headaches. I had the lower back stuff. My joints were just stiff all the time. And I was like, whatever, that's just from CrossFit and I'll just, I'll suck it up and deal with it. Um, and so, yeah, like I did that for years. And one thing I forgot to mention earlier is I actually did two years in, in the active reserves as well. So even transitioning out of active duty, there was still this, this sense of like, I could have done more. I should have done more. Like I had wanted to go the, the special forces route or at least go to, at least go to like ranger school, like try to do something to, to, you know, even add to the story, you know, John had mentioned earlier about not deploying and like, you know, I, here I served in the military, but what do I have to show for it? Like, I even had a deployment and I was still telling myself, like, what do I have to show for it? Like, I, my experience wasn't as difficult or as bad as the other guys. So therefore, you know, who am I to say that I had, a, uh, you know, I did anything in the military through that lens. And so I actually went back into the reserves. So at that point, it was going to school. So technically full time doing the like, whatever, 12 to 14 credit hours running the business and then do, doing the army reserve thing. And I just it was so easy to to brush off all the issues I was facing, and you know, thankfully at the time there was a, the the tattoo uh, regulation or ban was in fact was in effect, and so I couldn't go the routes that I wanted to. As soon as I went to the recruiters for uh, the National Guard uh, Special Forces and then also the Air Force uh, SF route, as soon as they saw my arms, like sorry, I can't touch you. Like you got tattoos, not can't do anything, and so. Went, and did, uh, went to a psychological operation unit actually in Grand Rapids, Michigan, so where Lance was, was from. And that was very eye-opening uh, to, to view this world going from combat arms to 
all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is kind of combat, but also really not. Like we support a lot of combat missions, but it's like to learn that aspect of what was going on. I was like, oh, wow, this is, I don't know how I feel about this. Like the propaganda and the way that, that we're taught to, is all manipulation. And I'm like, on one hand, I was like, I understand why we do this. And on the other hand, I'm like, this is some really fucked up stuff. And then I started to see like how that was, ha- like I saw how that was happening in my own life and how I, that had happened to me prior to joining the military. And I think for me, that started to unravel, like, wait a minute, what is happening here? Why am I experiencing what am I experiencing? Why did I do what I did? And then all of a sudden, the sleep started to catch up. The chronic pain started to catch up. Like, all the things started to catch up. And, like, I prided myself on being strong and being able to to push through anything. Like, you know, I thrive. Like, I used to tell people, like, I thrive in chaos. Like, make me the underdog and I'll prove you wrong. And so, like, I just, I carried that you know, with me all the way through and, you know, similar to Lance, like once, once one thing started to, to come undone, like I started to purposely peel back the layers and the one experience that I did have uh, with the military or the VA, I can't remember if I was still active at the time or if it was through the VA, but I remember I was like, Hey, I'm having trouble sleeping. Like here, here's some pills. And so thankfully I looked at it and they were antidepressants. And I was like, Oh no, like I know where this leads or I know where this can lead and I'm not doing it. So I didn't even take them, threw them away. And then, so that was actually the beginning of like, something's not right. And then several years into it, do the reserve thing. And then dealing with the politics and all that, like more started to unravel. And I was like, okay, something's not right. I I, got to do something. And I, I came across some articles, met a few people. It was actually through, uh, through CrossFit. I was following, uh, this podcast called Barbell Shrugged. And I remember the the host, uh, Mike Bledsoe, who ended up becoming one of my mentors, like he started to like propose these different avenues to healing. And first it started through fitness and it was like, here's how you get better at CrossFit. Here's how to improve your sleep. Here's some different ways to view what we're doing in this world. And so I just started following those rabbit holes that he suggested. And then I found about like plant medicine, for instance. And I was like, okay. I need to do something because what's happening right now, like I started having suicidal thoughts and ideologies and like, I just, it was getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And I'm like, I, I, I can't keep doing this, but I had the story of like, you need to be strong. You know, don't, don't show signs of weakness. Don't ask for support. And it finally got to a point where I was like, okay, I've heard enough, seen enough, experienced enough. And you know, that, that really led me down some of these alternative means and started with podcasts and books. And then finally, um, like my first experience ended up being in 2018. So seven years removed, did a couple years in reserves, but I, I did a retreat that just cracked me wide open and showed me like what was possible in life. And I just didn't, I didn't know this even existed. It's so like, like it was a culmination of like hitting what I thought was rock bottom and feeling the weight, feeling the pressure, you know, contemplating suicide and just realizing like that's not the life that i want to live and i know that there's so much more out there i know that there's a a a higher quality of living that's possible and i just i didn't trust western medicine i didn't trust the military so it was like the va was out of the question going to see a doctor was out of the question and yeah so it, it was a lot of like taking it on on my own first and then finally asking for support and realizing like okay i i can do this like and then from there it was just a lot of continue to peel back the layers until, you know, starting to see things a little bit more clearly. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a, a long, very intense process. As I look back, I could have, 
I could have done it in a fraction of the time. And I'm glad I didn't because there's some super valuable life lessons that I learned because of it. But yeah, it was a rocky transition. And like, I just remember for so long, like this, this, uh, this tension and friction within myself of like, I'm a veteran. I don't want to be a veteran anymore. Like I, I went all into it. I looked the part, played the part. And, and then all of a sudden I was like, I want nothing to do with this. I don't have anything to do with the military anymore. I don't have anything to do with being a veteran anymore. Like I'm tired of people looking at me a certain way. Um, and it, it was, it was this huge identity crisis. And like it, it uh, because I was so resilient, it, it took many a year before it boiled up. And then it just, yeah, it got to a point where it did. And I was like, cool. And so I, I started to make different choices. But yeah, it started with fitness. And like I said, like, I still wanted to go back in. Like I, like I had these stories of like, I could have done more. I should have done more. I'm not good enough to make it out in the civilian world. Like this is clearly not, not what's cut out for me. And so I was, I wanted to sell the business or I was actually going to just walk away from it. And thankfully I didn't, but yeah, that was more or less the transition that I experienced. And at the same time, like I, I stayed in contact with three close friends that I served with that were in the same platoon as me. And other than that, like I, I was like, I'm done with it. I don't want to like, I'm tired of the stories. I'm tired of, of just the antics and the bullshit and just everything else that was going along with it. And yeah, so I strayed far away from it before getting reconnected after I'd been doing a lot of this healing work, got uh, connected with Lance and, you know, and, and then John came along. And so it's like, I started to like see other veterans who were going through similar processes that weren't just simply out there like, oh, you got to like, you got to wake up at 4 a.m. You got to be disciplined and then you can go start your business and you can make a lot of money. And it's like, you got to just show up in that way. And I was like, no, like there's got to be a different way. Like I'm, I'm here for the hard work. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm here for it. But like, this just does not seem like the way, like this just doesn't seem healthy. So, so yeah, that, that was more or less my journey, um, you know, leading out. And then like, even with the reserve stuff, like I said, like the politics was just, it was out of control. My commander even like it hit a point where my commander was like, I'm done. It's so, like, he put in like two weeks notice and I was like, sir, you and I had an agreement. Like you and I talked about like me sticking along and like, since you're leaving, can you just sign my paperwork please? And so thankfully I was able to have a smooth transition out of that. But um, yeah. And then all of that leading up to, to my own journey and then, you know, collaborating with Lance and then John and, and doing what we're doing with the rising warrior now. So it's very interesting for a couple of reasons. Firstly, if five years of this podcast, I've learned so much, you know, initially years ago, it's funny you said barbell shrugged. I used to listen to that. Um, and I've had Mike on the show, Mike Bledsoe. Um, and as you, you talk about the onion, you know, the, the, the layers that we were missing were things like childhood trauma, like what we bring into the profession in the first place is huge. Organizational stress, betrayal, you know, that's a massive one that we don't think about. Of course, what we do, sleep deprivation, absolutely huge. But you just made me think of something that I'd never really put two and two together. I talk about in the fire service when we start taking all the overtime you know, that that's a mental health crisis. If, if you're like, you know, drowning in debt and you have to for two weeks so that you can pay for your wedding, whatever it is, I get it. But if you're the dude that's always at the station, you're what we call the overtime whore. Um, that's a scary like red flag that maybe that you're avoiding something here. But I didn't think of that. There is a huge movement in the veteran population, the kind of, you know, grunt style chest beating, um, you know, like you said, 4 a.m., do a thousand push-ups, you know, and then go crush your 12 entrepreneurial projects that maybe you want to take a step back and go, is this actually a burning desire or are you just keeping yourself so fucking busy because you're avoiding actually thinking about something that needs to be addressed? It's an addiction. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a real addiction. I mean, it's it's one of the reasons why our message is so different than what's out there for most veterans. Like we're, um, <laughs> listen, we love lifting weights. We love fucking doing all the shit that you just talked about. And uh, there's a time and place for all that stuff. So like you said, um, we are, uh, I would say men, right? Uh, most of our population are men uh, with some kind of, even if you didn't go deploy, you had some sort of, You've been training. People have told you who to be. You've been indoctrinated in some way by the military. You've been programmed by your family, and you're, you talked about that, like childhood trauma. Um, so you, you've got a lot of stuff built up, and then there's this culture that glorifies, you know, drinking a 300 milligram cup of coffee, and then going to go to CrossFit gym, and then going to fucking, like you said, do your entrepreneurial stuff. Um, you end up literally running away from yourself over and over and over again. And one of the reasons that, um, you know, Lance started the rising warrior a couple of years back. And when I joined him, I realized that, uh, I didn't know, I, I actually didn't realize how, how much of a unique voice us three together have and how different, how we can provide a different, uh, perspective for a lot of the guys that you're referring to first responders and veterans. Like, Hey man, you can serve and you can also take care of yourself. Like they're not, they're not separate things. They actually support each other. Like the better you are inside, the better you treat your mind, your body, your soul, the better you can show up for other people more effectively as well. Absolutely. Well, Lance, well, that's, that's a great segue there. So talk to me about, um, you know, your kind of journey into realizing that there was a void that needed to be filled and then, you know, how you came up with Rising Warrior. So going back to when I was going to the VA and I quickly realized they don't know what the fuck they're doing. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some good therapists. There are some good uh, psychiatrists out there, but in a whole from my experience and the many veterans I've talked to covering symptoms. Um, so again, I, I jumped down the rabbit hole of everything personal development, food, TBI, sleep, so on and so forth. Uh, and after a while, I, I felt like I got a good grasp of my own mental health. And uh, even before I go any further, I'm going to say we, us three, we not a big fan of the term mental health. Um, when we use the term mental health, there's just this heavy weight that comes with it. Uh, so we like to reterm it as cognitive fitness. So, um, so yeah, I, I had a, I, I had a good grasp of my cognitive fitness and I was like, man, a lot of veterans out there, I want to turn around and help them. So I started coaching veterans one-on-one -on -one and I was getting good results. And, um, quickly I was like, there's a lot of veterans and me doing one-on-one -on -one is barely touching the tip of the iceberg. So I started doing group projects, group programs, coaching with groups of, um, five to 10 veterans. And, um, after a while I ended up running into Sean and we uh, joined forces and we've done a few groups together. And then, um, JP over here ended up coming into our circle and then we've all joined forces. And again, the rest is a wonderful, wonderful history. So talk to me about what you guys offer them, because I mean, there, you know, there, there are so many people doing, a variety of things from, you know, I began retreats in, 
you know, Central America through to, you know, um, retreats on ranches and skydiving, you name it. I mean, and they're mm-hmm. all coming from a great place. So what are you guys offering uniquely to the, to the military community? And also tell me about your first responder retreats. Uh, so I'm going to let JP jump in on this. Um, and before he even jumps, <laughs> I know where I'm good and I know when you're, where you guys are good at. So before we even jump into that, I want to say that um, cognitive fitness is a massive topic. It's not just uh, talk therapy. It's not just this. It's not just that. There's a lot involved. So we're with what we do is it's just the tip of the iceberg again. JP, yeah. take yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great preface. I appreciate that, Lance. Um, you know, we've been building this thing together. So I, I, I joined, uh, I did the beta program uh, with Sean and Lance when they ran it. I basically just observed it going through it. I'd done some of the self-development um, courses, some of the trauma healing work uh, the pro- that same year. So I came into it with, with I mean, heart open. I had a lot of experience in it. Um, and same thing, I saw these guys go through it and I realized like, oh, we can refine this thing and make it even more dialed in. Um, so I'll press it with this. There are no hacks to healing. There's no like thing you're going to do that all of a sudden you're going to wake up one day and I'm like, I'm healed. I have now arrived. <laughs> and even the concept of arrival, of getting to a place where this heavenly place of, of healing is, is, a, is, is a false notion. That I, I just want to preface that before we get into what we do. Um, and the other piece I'll say is what we're offering is, a, is essentially a 90-day program, coaching program. And what, you know, Sean talked about this a little bit through um, some of the work that he had done earlier as well as Lance. And what we've realized over the years is that we can condense all of our experiences into 12 weeks of you being supported through a process. Every week you get a, a module from us, 15, 20 minutes, something new to learn. Uh, beginning with the breath and the body. And so, you know, this is a lot of our work and Lance specifically, you know, he, he brought a lot of stories of people coming in to pain, you know, painful back or, or issues having breathing at, at his clinic and then literally giving him, giving them five minutes of box breathing and then coming back and they're like, oh shit, I don't have any headaches and, and I'm better completely. Not just box breathing, but proper diaphragmatic belly breathing. Instead Proper, of upper chest breathing. Right. Actually engaging the right um, systems when you're breathing, truly expanding your diaphragm. So um, we start there. Uh, we move on to kind of opening up your joints, uh, uh, really understanding motion a little bit. And then our, the meat and potatoes of our work is in stories and in beliefs. Um, we, we do that through uh, the story work that Sean and Lance are, are really, really, really schooled at, as well as the somatic healing elements to actually get into the emotion in the body. So starting to understand that uh, the, an emotion you feel, something you call anger has an actual representation in your body. That's actually the beginning of the emotion. And so what are those emotions telling us about our stories and how are those things informing our beliefs? Um, so our program is not for the faint-hearted. Uh, if, if, if generally people who are attracted to our work have done a lot of stuff and it's just not connecting, they, they do the working out, they do the breathing, but they can't quite find how to mix these things together. And so we, we like, we want to tie those things together. Uh, you know, I would, I would encourage both veterans and first responders if they're interested to, to sign up for a program, because there's a lot of parallels between uh, the, the communities. And in, in, in truth, what we do mostly is 
get to know yourself. Like I, we teach you how to actually journal effectively. So what are all those voices happening inside your head and how, how do you parse it out? How do you split up what's actually happening in your head? Um, how do you understand? You talked a little bit about like childhood traumas and things like that. What did your mother teach you about loving yourself? What did your dad teach you about dealing with people with others? How do you face the world? So really getting down into those details and being able to, at, 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 if nothing else, give you an opportunity to self-reflect on how you've gotten to the point you are right now. And, um, you know, that's, that's really our goal is to take this holistic approach so that you begin your own healing journey rather than we, us trying to fix you. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then our, our first responder work right now uh, is in the form of workshops. So we're doing that thing, uh, developing a workshop right now with the Air Force uh, Firehouse in the Air Force Base in Georgia. Um, and really it's about introducing these concepts in like bite-sized actionable pieces during uh, a three or five day workshop. So, Hey, let's teach you how to breathe. Let's teach you how to actually journal to understand your thoughts. Let's, let's take the stigma out of feeling your emotions and actually be vulnerable amongst each other. So you can, you can sit with that cognitive fitness and, and, you know, what they're calling in their world with mental health from our perspective of self-understanding and vulnerability and openness rather than like, let me stuff this down and just continue on with my day. Sean, you seem like you're going to come in with something as well. Yeah. Do you mind if I add to that, John? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please go for it. I'm just giving the overview. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, it's something I want to distinguish or, or make a distinction on is that, <clears throat> so like it, it's a process of peeling back the layers and, and helping, you know, veterans and first responders see that, you know, what they're experiencing <clears throat> is often like how all of what John talked about is leading to what they're experiencing. So whether they're in pain, they have overwhelmed, they're dealing with anxiety, depression, uh, you know, the really big one obviously is traumatic, like traumatic events and like how we, re how we deal with those and how we're able to cope with those. And so like going through the program, like John said, it's, it's not a quick fix. Like what we're doing is we're providing them the tools to be with reality because the reality of it is like, especially as first responders, and this is something that, you know, we've been learning about quite extensively, especially of late is that like, like those experiences are going to happen. Like we cannot prevent those things from happening. Like you're, they're going to get the calls. There's going to be accidents. There's, there's going to be death. There's going to be all these things like those, unfortunately is just a part of living. And so instead of, you know, us carrying the stories, like I mentioned earlier with myself, where it's like, Oh, I can do this on my own. I'll just, I'll just suck it up and deal with it. Like what we're helping them do is dismantle these stories. So that way that they can better show up not only in their communities, but for themselves, for their families, improving communication and like really helping them paint a picture of, of why they're experiencing what they're experiencing. And in the process of that, they're also getting the results of, you know, managing anxiety and depression, being able to cope with these traumatic events, being able to connect with their families, being able to connect with coworkers, like being able to fully show up and so like, like our little catch line is, you know, we, we want to take them from surviving to thriving because it is 100% possible even within these, within these realms. And it's, it's, you know, I think the other important piece here is, is providing them with actual tools that can help them themselves instead of needing to rely on other people. Like there is 100% a time and place to reach out for support. And like, we'll be the first to tell you that. 
And there's also going to be times where you can manage this stuff on your own because like, again, like we have all these stories about how we show up and not wanting to be a burden and need to look a certain way. Like we've got to be strong, like all these different things. And what it's doing is it's preventing us from fully showing up and then also connecting some dots too about like, Hey, maybe this pain you're experiencing isn't because, you know, simply you worked out too hard. Like maybe this is years of pent up trauma and emotions that you haven't been feeling right. Like this is something that we, like we learned on our personal journey. And so like the one thing that we joke about oftentimes is like, we're, we're helping people feel their feelings, right. Which sounds, it can sound silly. And at the same time, like there's so much power in getting people to connect back with themselves, especially within these populations. And, you know, again, it was the process of, you know, going through these other, you know, routes of like trying to find this healing and, you know, within ourselves and then also the people that we met, we just, we found that it obviously wasn't working, that something was missing. And so like, these are the components that, that we've been able to find ourselves through these different programs, through these different retreats and experiences, you know, through plant medicine, also through breath work, through journaling, through like John was saying, story work, like all these different components. And then what we realize is that, we can all do this. And like, you don't need plant medicine, for instance, like you talked about Ibogaine, like you don't need something like Ibogaine or ayahuasca to, to have these healing transformations. Like what we've found is that we're all capable of doing it. And oftentimes people are just lacking context. Like one of the common things that we've, we've gotten from individuals that we've worked with is that they've all tried therapy or some form of uh, <clears throat> yeah, it could be talk therapy or somatic therapy or something like that. And it's like, they were getting all this information from outside and it just it simply wasn't landing. And what we were fa- finding was that they were more being talked at, number one. And two, they were lacking connection with the, with the practitioners. And so I think that's a unique position that we find ourselves in is that we can actually have conversations and ask questions and actually share about our experience, which we found is like, oh, this builds connection, this builds trust. And then all of a sudden, these things start to help land for them. And, and then we also like detangle these stories around like what it means like especially with the men right it's like what it means to be a man and like the fact that like journaling isn't just some middle school thing that that we did about dear diary like this is what happened today it's like oh journaling is is actually this process of can i get this stuff out of my head and onto paper because if it's in my head it's like right in my face but if i can get it onto paper now all of a sudden i have perspective and so we're, we're helping shift these perspectives you know through the process of the program and like john was saying like we do some emotional work um, we do have some some training and uh, trauma release, and so we are able to, if needed, to to have those conversations and guide individuals through that. And then, um, you know, down the road, we, we, we our plan is to be able to do some of this stuff in person because we can hit. Uh, there's can be a much larger impact, and we don't necessarily need to be in person. Like we've realized that through the course of these 90 days, like we can give you know veterans and first responders uh, both like the tools to be able to show up to life and to not have to be experiencing like what they think is, this is just the way life is. Like, I'm just going to never, like, I, like, you know, my story earlier, like, this is just the way it is. Like, I'm never going to sleep. I'm always going to be in pain. And yet they wonder why, like they're lacking connection with their spouses or with their kids or like why they don't feel fulfillment at work. Or it's like, why all these things are happening, you know? So it's like providing them with these simple tools. And it is like, we're really scratching the surface, which is also what's really beautiful and amazing is that it's not rocket science. Like you don't need the next big thing. Like there's 
so many simple things that we can do from breath work to writing stuff down to, you know, simply opening up and feeling like some anger or some sadness might, that might've been there and helping them like be with that and give them the tools for that. Because that's the stuff that we experience in our day-to-day lives, right? To, to what degree will obviously vary, but it's being able to provide those types of things, you know, for, you know, for these groups. Well, Lance, just to bring you in as well, um, you know, you touched on breathwork before. I've, I've, it's a topic I've had lots of conversations here. Brian McKenzie, Patrick McCohen, um, Wim Hof. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's like a, there's a double edged sword. And if you just discuss one side, I think you miss a lot as well. And I heard you guys mention, um, uh, the body keeps the score in the fire dogs podcast you were on. Um, one that I own still haven't read yet. So, uh, I need to, I keep saying I need to put it at the top of the pile, but, with that whole concept, talk to me about the the interrelation between the you know sympathetic and parasympathetic and also manifestation in the body because as you know as a lot of those those practitioners talk about you know if we are chest breathing if we are you know um mouth breathing you know you're you're up regulating the nervous system versus being able to down regulate with you know diaphragmatic breathing and um you know some sort of mindfulness practice. But it seems like if you just talk about trauma and conversation, you miss the body part. If you just talk about yoga and stretching, you miss the conversation part. Uh, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to split this into two parts: uh, breath, and then how how um, how motions per se present themselves in the body. I mean, we still don't know this. I mean, we still don't know jack or squat about the human body at all. Um, breathing is key. Uh, so in our body, we have something called the autonomic nervous system and the autonomic nervous system is split into two parts, sympathetic and parasympathetic sympathetics are rest. Uh, sympathetics are fight or flight. Like when I need to stay alive and parasympathetics, you know, when I'm chilling, when I'm, I, I picture face down in a massage table, totally chill. Um, and we, we talk, I, I think about breathing. If I, if I need to get a full inhalation of breath, when am I doing that? It's most likely when I'm in a sympathetic state, when I'm either exercising really hard, or if we go back a few hundred generations, when I'm uh, out in the jungle, when I'm being chased by a lion. And I, and at that point I'm taking massive, massive breaths. I'm breathing into my chest. I'm getting all the inhalation I can get. So if we're constantly breathing into our chest, we're constantly signaling to our body that I'm in a sympathetic state. So this is why um, we teach breath and the, dy- dy- the dynamics and the anatomy and physiology of it. It's because it's really key. Most of us are living in a sympathetic state 100% of our lives. And we're not able, it's, I'm not going to say not able to, I'm going to say it's very difficult to do anything and change anything if you're in a sympathetic state at all points. So what we talk about is breathing into the belly. So when we breathe into the belly, it sh- switches us from a parasympathetic, uh, from a sympathetic to a parasympathetic. So I, I see it every day in my practice, um, people come in with headaches, people come in with back pain. And most of the time I just look at them. I'm like, just take a deep breath. And right off the bat, I would say 95% of the population in America are chest breathers. And 95% of the people in America are living in a sympathetic, freaking the fuck out state. And you, it's again, it's really difficult to heal. It's really difficult to change anything. It's really difficult to make any 
significant change in our life if we're in a sympathetic state 100% of our time. So key is, let's start with our breath. Let's shift our breath down to our abdomen. Very simple to be said and very difficult to do if you've been doing it most of your life. The cool thing is, is the diaphragm, it's a muscle. Just like any other muscle, you can retrain it. So um, that being said, breathe into your abdomen, through your nose, out through your nose, and um, watch the magic happen. Um, the other thing is how emotions present themselves in the body. Uh, on, on a daily basis, uh, I don't know how many times people come in and say, I hold all my stress on my shoulders. I'm like, yeah, you and everybody else. What other emotions are you holding in the body? Um, when COVID happened, um, I don't know how there was a massive uptick of individuals coming with all kinds of pain with no mechanism of injury. I'm like, okay, you hurt your shoulder. How'd you hurt it? When did you hurt it? What happened? I don't know. Well, let's be honest. The body just doesn't start randomly hurting for no good reason. There's going to be a reason. And many times it's, uh, again, I'm going to go back to the breath. Uh, our, our, if we're not breathing to abdomen, everything tightens up. Um, and again, there, COVID caused a lot of stress and a lot of sympathetic states in people. So we're breathing in our chest, tightens up all these tissues. And then it's just a cascade effect. And then I get to see you in my office and I get to pay off my student debt. <laughs> Thank you. And that, that, that book even goes, a body keeps the score, goes in uh, deeper into mm. how we hold trauma in the body, um, what the, the signs and symptoms are. And, and Sean and I have done a, a longer uh, trauma, essentially trauma-informed training, uh, facilitating people through that work. And uh, what we found is that um, you, you are um, – in your day-to-day life, something triggers you into an emotional response. And, and that has, if you notice, has a literal physical component to it. So that's why we teach uh, a little bit about story, a little bit about belief, so that we can string this thing together between what was my trigger and the emotion, what story am I telling myself about that thing, and what belief is underneath it. And so at first, really, it's about getting you into your emotion. And so let's say, uh, James, you have a... Uh, uh, some uh, a hang up about uh, you get really pissed off when people uh, cut you off in traffic. Never happens. I'm so I'm so <laughs> relaxed behind the wheel. You're so good. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so we we'd, we'd kind of peel the layer back and like, okay, what is it about it that pisses you off? We're all these fucking people. They're always cutting me off. They're getting in my way. I'm trying to get places. And then so we peel that back again. We say like, why are you trying to get places? What's the rush? Da 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 da. So we get back, and in that moment, you, you're already literally telling that story. Your emotions are coming up in your body. You're starting to feel sensation. And I stop you right then. I go, James, what are you feeling in your body right now? I'm just feeling a little bit tension in my chest. Okay, great. Why don't you close your eyes, breathe deeply into your belly, and just track it. What do you feel right now? So by actually tracking our sensations and, and giving it a name, giving it a, a size, a shape, a color – we can, we can cause that felt sense something, and it gives us the opportunity to start separating our story, all the stuff we're telling ourselves about what's going on, back into the body and saying, this is actually what's happening in my body, 
allow yourself to process that instead of actually suppressing it, which is what most of us do, suppress it. Allow it to flow. If it's sadness, cry your fucking eyes out, man. If it's anger, like yell into a pillow and get it out. Giving yourself the ability to sit with it. For most people, they're so trapped in their body and so in, like you know, Lance was saying, parasympathetic state that the breath is the opening, the beginning, and then getting into the body a little bit deeper into this. That that's what that's what really somatic is about. Is like let's get into the body to actually feel these emotions. Um, so that that's sort of the tie-in here between these two things. I'd like to add to that. Um, going back to when I first started having my problems with PTSD, I was basically an alcoholic. You know, a, a, a three, four, five, six beers a night. The weekends where I was drunk, and I look back, uh, and on top of that, I was. Um, by the time I went to the VA, I didn't want pills, but before that I was popping pills. Um, and if it wasn't that it was cannabis. And I look back, I was like, I was trying to cover up that skin crawling feeling that I was afraid to look straight in the eyes and come to terms with. And I was just running away from it and speaking for myself, that's what I was doing. But I can imagine a lot of other veterans shit, not even just veterans, a lot of other people in the world. That's what we're doing. We're running away from this skin crawling feeling, this tightness in our chest, whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I even had an experience of that myself and it came out of nowhere, you know, and it's not when you traditionally think about, you know, being haunted by things or whatever. There's a lot of things in my past that were trauma, but there's also a lot of things in my past that set me up for success by accident. You know, I grew up in a big family. We ate dinner together around a farm table and, you know, had lots of nature and all that kind of stuff. But I had an event October of last year and I had never felt that crawling under your skin until then. And it was kind of like a, it was a perfect storm. You talk about COVID, the damn regulations that kept me away from my family for years. I had to spend like almost a grand on COVID tests and, you know, I had the vaccine and all that shit, but um, just to physically see it. And it was just this compounding thing. But you talk about the the skin crawling. I I started meditating, even though I was still deep, deep in it at that point. I, I made, I not made myself. I, I meditated and I did a 10 minute yoga practice every morning. And I was still drinking again not binge drinking by any means but I've, I've told this a thousand times like i i drank habitually and that was as bad it was destroying my sleep every time but by doing that it about three or four days in i wasn't crawling under my skin anymore it was amazing and it, again it was just facing it, it was sitting there going i want to choke someone i want to punch someone in the face i'm just so like Ugh! but it, it was having the courage to actually move past that rather than well that didn't feel good i'm not going to do that again and i think that's the problem is like my profession we are so overworked we are so underslept you know and then you add in god knows what happened before you put the uniform on then you talk about your you know your relationship dynamics now you're a chief's an asshole and you just <laughs> compound it we are we're walking around you know and and now when you get cut up you get cut off by someone who reminds you of that minivan full of kids that were killed by that asshole that cut someone up. So you literally want to go in, smash the window, drag the person out. You know, I mean, it's, it's like, <laughs> so I can, can totally completely understand what you're saying and having to kind of reverse, um, engineer, like back off from this, this year, like decades long journey you found yourself in and identifying who the actual James Gearing is under all that 
under all these layers of trauma and, and different emotions. It, it's uncomfortable, you know, it's not fun by any means, but it's absolutely essential because you're so far from who you actually are. Yeah. I, I, I say this on numerous podcasts and numerous times I talk. Um, I've talked to some stone cold motherfuckers like door kickers, face shooters, like not afraid of shit. And I say, Hey, let's talk about some feelings and emotions. And they, <laughs> they, they turn tail and run away. So a lot of this isn't for the faint of heart. This is some scary shit. We're, uh, we're asking you to face some, some things that you've been running away for long, 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 long time. And yeah. okay. You can keep running or you can get over it and yeah, it sucks. But man, once you're over it, it's golden. It's a fucking beautiful yeah. place, man. Like having the capacity to, you know, starting with self radical self responsibility and then saying like, all right, I'm going to stop making fucking excuses. I'm responsible for, for how I create my, my perspective. At least I am responsible for my actions. I can't change what other people are doing, but I can change how I'm, I'm showing up. Um, that is the first doorway into the, you know, what you got, what, we're, what we've been talking about. Like if you can come and you want to, you can have the, the, the humility to be like, Hey, listen, I don't know how to do this. I need support. And I'm ready to face these things that I've literally physically been running away from. Um, and realizing that on the other side, what happens is, uh, you know, what, what coaching especially does is it creates coaching and facilitation is creates, uh, a safe container for that to happen. Like, Hey man, I'm just going to hold space for you, brother. Like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm just going to give you these tools and then I'm going to hold space for whatever it is your experience you're having. Okay. If, if you, James were, you know, that they came up the, uh, the reaction of like, I'm going to fucking hit that guy. Um, like, yeah, like feel it go like be with it. Can you be with it on this call with us right now and, and have that experience while we're talking through it, get to the end of that sensation all the way through. And then what's available afterwards. Are you still that angry? Are you still holding that on? Or is there, it usually what we find is that there's clarity, literal physical lightness, um, as well as, all right, that's just a story I've been telling myself. That's a belief that I'd have somewhere in there, but it's not necessarily accurate all the way through. Other people live differently. Hmm. Maybe I can do this differently. Yeah, that driver's still an asshole, but I don't have to respond to that <laughs> asshole. Exactly, he can be an asshole, and you can be, you know, you can be okay about it. Sean, you going to jump in again? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, make mention to you know something I think is important to to uh, yeah, just to mention is that you know we're especially when we talk about the word trauma, you know, oftentimes a lot of what we're working with tends to not be what we call big T trauma. So it's not the car wreck where someone died. It's not the, you know, watching your buddy get shot next to you. It, it, it's not always that. What we often find is that there's also stuff from childhood, what we would call like little T trauma or also known as developmental trauma that is also manifesting and showing up in the body in a similar way. And so I, I want to make mention of that for like any of our listeners out there. If you're just like sitting like, well, I've never experienced anything that bad. Therefore, I'm in the clear. When in reality, like, as children, like we attach meaning to everything because we don't understand what's happening. Like we don't have logic formed quite yet. And so we form these stories and then they just continue to compound. And I think that, you know, something that's really 
opened my eyes is viewing the military and what I imagine also in the first responder world is like those professions are pressure cookers for something that was already there. And then that gets compounded if you do experience some like big T trauma, right? You, you see someone die or you have to take someone's life or you're unable to save somebody. So like it, it it's both and, and both of those are going to show up in the body. So I, I wanted to make that distinction just so that way, because I, I had this notion of especially being in the military or working with first responders or, or veterans that like, Oh, all of these things are going to be these big T traumas. And like, for me, I was like, okay, I don't, I didn't really experience a big T trauma while I was deployed. Like, yeah, I saw some shit. And at the same time, it wasn't like, you know, the guy next to me didn't blow up. Like I had friends who were out on foot patrols that step on IEDs. And it's like, yeah, that's a, cl that's clearly traumatic. And yet what I found was when I, when I allowed myself to be open to this experience, all this stuff from childhood did start to show up. And I was like, Oh man, like this is where all this heaviness that I've been carrying. And then like, when we look at, like I said, when someone does experience big T trauma on top of that, it's just, it compounds. So it's like, it, it's always there. Like in, no child is going to be free from it. Every child is going to have developmental trauma. Like it's inevitable. So it's not like we can prevent that. It's like, how can we, you know, better learn to be with that? You know, and, and that's, again, it's like the tools that we're talking about. Like we can have these conversations with children and like, Hey, I understand you're upset and you're angry. That's okay. Like, like let's, let's chat about it. Instead of like, as a parent, like trying to tell them to stop and shut up. It's like, we see all these things and then that just compounds as we go through our life because we're, we're throwing all the stories and stuff on it. So yeah, I just wanted to, to add that distinction in there as well for a little bit more context. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I know uh, I've got a, such a smorgasbord of, of, you know, guests on here and, and trauma, you can't compare trauma. You know, I've got a, a guy that was a boy soldier in Sierra Leone whose parents were murdered and was forced to kill. And then I've got a, a friend of mine who was a middle child. But in that dynamic, he he felt very unloved. And it's the same thing. They had the same impact, just in two different ways. Well, Lance, I want to firstly thank you all, you know, for such a great conversation. But I want to make sure people know where they can actually find you. So so talk to me about the website and any other social media outlets as well. Uh, you can find us at therisingwarrior.com. And you can find us at the Rising Warrior Instagram um, and Facebook. Um, we're not on Facebook. <laughs> I mean, we're on Facebook, but yeah, we're on there. We're yeah. on there. Not but, a lot um, of interaction. Facebook, no. Facebook doesn't care that you're on it. That's the point. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're doing we're good the, things in the world. They're not going to care about that. Yeah, we're on the metaverse somewhere over there. Uh, so yeah, the Rising Warrior. Uh, look into us, um, man. If you have questions, we'd love to chat. We're, yeah, we're please curious. reach out. Like, yeah. yeah, like we're we're open open sources. Like, we love like getting questions. Like, people who are looking for support. Like, please reach out and at least say something. If this any of this is is clicking, you know, we're we're happy happy to help, happy to be of service. Check out our podcast as well. Oh Let's yeah, yeah. I forgot we have a podcast, the Rising <laughs> Warrior Podcast. Um, yeah, forgot about that. <laughs> we don't talk about other people's podcasts here. Okay, yeah, sorry. Don't check out the podcast. Do not. It's horrible. Worst thing ever. So where can they find the podcast? On all the regular outlets? Uh, Spotify, uh, iTunes, all the cool stuff. Brilliant. All the, all the cool, where the cool kids are. Excellent. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. I think we chatted for almost two hours now. but uh, Yeah, it's good. It's been, it's been great, and I think it's so important to get you know, the, the, the backstories and, you know, the highs and the lows so that when we get to what you're doing now, people understand, okay, these are three men that actually have understood, but, it, you know, in d very different 
reasons, very different lenses, perspectives. So thank you so much, firstly, for serving and then coming out and deciding to serve again, as so many people do on this podcast. And secondly, for being so generous with your time and telling your stories today. Yeah. Thank you, man. Thanks, James. Appreciate Thanks for doing it. such yeah, an really awesome, awesome podcast. You're, you're asking great questions and we're, we understand that.